In our culture, we're taught to just take it. We're taught to just be resilient. And, and you know, and, and that resiliency, without you having to deal with it in, in, in a really proper way, it affects you down the line. Welcome to our podcast series, Resistance in Color. We explore resistance as the way that we fight the challenges, structures that negatively affect spheres of our mental, social, and physical health. We hear from a host of BIPOC voices of community members featuring activists, healers, organizers, students. We will engage in how we resist, find solidarity, and gain insight on how to cope within our own bodies. The series features stories of incredible resilience focused on the healing of both individuals and communities as an active form of resistance. This podcast series has been made possible by the Fund for Safe Communities grant of the Minneapolis Foundation to NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Youth Advisory Board. Welcome and thank you for listening. Welcome to this episode of Resistance in Color. Our guest today is Farheya Budu, a Muslim Somali woman who is an advocate for treatment in her community. As the founder of a new emerging first recovery community organization addressing the unique needs of the East African community, her work has really been sharing her own recovery story with others to help reduce the shame and stigma. As someone with lived experience of substance use and mental health disorders, she uses her voice to empower others, to help educate them and advocate for recovery in the city, state, and legislative level. Welcome, Fahia. Hey. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting. Yeah, thank you, Fahia, for being with us. Um, and as you know, our podcast is called Resistance in Color. And so one of the first questions we like to um, begin with is what does resistance um, mean to you? Or what does resistance in color look like to you? Uh, We've heard from different voices um, on our podcast, so different kind of people from different backgrounds. And we're just curious to hear what are your thoughts? What does resistance in color look like or sound like? Yeah, sure. This is interesting. Um, Resistance in color... um, Looks like, you know, you're resisting, meaning you're not accepting. There's something in the way. There's a barrier. Um, and we want to help address that in a way. So, like, moving towards change and acceptance. That's what it looks like, feels like to me. So, when you think about the barrier um, that you are resisting, what would you describe your barriers as? Barriers. Um, there's a lot. It's like walls building up. So the barriers are, you know, language barriers, um, advocating barriers, ways to advocate, access, um, barriers to accessibility, um, whether it could be transportation. Now everything is like Zoom and, and these, you know, virtual platforms. If you don't know how to navigate that, that could be a barrier itself. There's so many different multi-levels to it. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what your journey of resistance has looked like. And this can be both personally and, like you had said, involvement in advocacy or like legislative work. What has the journey of resistance so far here looked like? Yeah, so for me, um, the resistance, um, stigma, a lot of stigma and shame uh, would prevented me from really um, reaching out and accessing for help. Um, in, in any in any way, 
Um, and also, um, my advocacy work has really been trying to reach out to my own legislators and my representatives in my community and letting them know the importance of recovery, um, recovery for substance use disorders and mental health, and, and uh, alloc- you know, advocating for recovery in our community um, to let them know the importance of that. Um, advocating within my community as well as someone in long-term recovery, um, you know, people are like, hey, you already recovered. You don't have to talk about your recovery story. But I'm like, no, I want others to know that recovery is possible for them too. Yeah. You know, when we talked before, you talked about your journey here and um, its effect on you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how it impacted um how you ultimately ended up um, with a substance use disorder? Yeah, um, I, honestly, it was a lot of that lack and awareness and the education um, from my parents and in my community and um, through peer pressure. Uh, you know, you're a young woman wanting to hang out and and want to fit into this, you know, Western society. So you want to hang out and and go out to the clubs and that lifestyle of just wanting to hang out and kick it. So uh, ultimately, substance use disorders, um, I, you know, at first it doesn't go to that length. It starts out really and it sneaks up on you because um, alcohol kind of, you know, lifts that feeling, you know, makes you want to open up more and and all of that. But then at the end, it's about that balance. And when you don't have that balance, um, it, it, it becomes a huge problem. Um, and then later on, you can't ask for help because in the beginning, uh, as a Muslim woman, intoxicants are uh, not something that we do, you know, in, in our community. So then it becomes harder to ask for help because you don't want to admit that you have a problem. And I think this goes in line as well with what your definition of resistance look like, all these barriers to um, and in your case, to being able to speak about um, substance abuse disorder or even to speak about mental health, what um, are kind of the things that you feel have helped you break that barrier or are helping or should be helping? I don't know. Yeah, so I uh, one thing that really truly helped was sharing my own recovery story with other people and 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 really, and the clients that we serve, um, peer, you know, being a peer recovery specialist, and um, it's just about connecting with people. So when people are able to hear you say that you've been through this, you know what it's like, you can really walk along their side in their recovery journey. Um, people are able to really respect you and, and really open up more. And then like going into the homes and like helping a whole family because this is also a family disease mm. and really understanding that, you know, my community doesn't look at it as a disease, but a moral failing. And like switching that up and saying, it's not really a moral failing. Right. It's really addiction. Addiction is a disease mm-hmm. and it's a brain disease and, and, and mental health along with it. Cause now the two are correlating. So dual diagnosis becomes an issue and, and letting people know that recovery is possible for them at, at, at any given point in their journey. Hmm. When we talked previously, um, you know, one of the things that that stuck out on my mind was um, your journey um, coming to this country 
and how being um, a, a new arrival in this country and every, pretty much everyone around you in that same situation affected you um, in a way that, um, um, you know, you could be related to um, some of the substance use that, that you talk about. Can you talk a little bit about that journey, how it affected you and, and how it affected the people around you? And, and what you had to do to get past um, that stigma t to then reach out for help? Yeah, sure. Thank you. This is a great question. Um, I think for me and my own personal story um, and my family, when we first came to America, um, it, you know, when you come from a war-torn country, living in a refugee camp for many, many years, and, and, and your country is just in distraught with, with bullets flying and you just want to be able to save yourself and leave everything that you ever owned and get on a boat or a bus to come and live in a refugee camp. Mm. As a kid, it affects you. And, and even as an adult, it affects you to some degree. But, you know, in our culture, we're taught to just take it. We're taught to just be resilient, mm. and and you know, and and that resiliency, without you having to deal with it in, in, in a really proper way, it affects you down the line. Um, when you come to a new country and you want to adapt and you want to learn the new system, and you can, you have this PTSD, um, you know, lingering behind, you know, somewhere in reservation. So like. Um, it, it, it manifested in different areas of your life. And one way it affected me was through um, substance use and mental health, you know, the early depression, early anxiety, um, you know, as a teenager. Um, and then as a, a young adult, you know, going out with my friends and wanting to, um, you know, hang out and club and, and, and that scene, you know, that party life and not, wanting to, not knowing how to navigate and balance that and, and really manifested in that in that aspect with men, you know increased mental health and substance use disorders and me not able to really get the help that I needed early on because it was a stigma it was a lot of shame I didn't want my community to to shun me my family to shun me um, and and so so many different it's very complex so I, I yeah I I could talk about this for, for a long time. <laughs> um, and I think you talk a little bit as well and you hint at, I guess, the impact of community expectations and norms and how that kind of shapes the experience of um, living, experiencing life. And I think going even going through that uh, PTSD and, and then that trauma or even just experiencing life with the things that you want to experiment. Could you talk a little bit about the role of culture in in resistance in like encouraging you to be resistance and and i think you even said something about our culture just teaches us just to take it could you expand a little more about what you mean by that yeah it's not um, like the um you know it's not a say word it's just like it's assumed you know it's like because you're you're a somali or you're east african or you're you're a female too like you just assume this responsibility to not have anything affect you because, like, you're the, you know, you take care of the whole household, and, you know, you're all the female, you, you know, you are the one who uh, cook and clean, and then you have all these different responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So you must be the strong one because if you're not the strong one, everything else falls apart, you know? 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's just a culture, you know. Um, it's just a cultural way of you know these um, that is being instilled. Um, so I want to help change the narrative and empower women to be more than um, you know their role. You know, you're so much more than your role. So mm-hmm. I, I want others to know that as females. Yeah. So so in your journey, what was the the point at which you decided that you would break out of that role and seek help. Can you talk a little bit about what gave you the strength to do that and, and to, to hold firm um, in your recovery? Of course, yes. Um, I mean, as you know, my faith, um, I, I, you know, my, I could not have done any of this recovery support through my faith and, and, and God being um, the sole um, purpose of, of helping me to to shape this woman that I am today. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I had to pray. It's a lot of praying. My mother also made a lot of prayer for me to, to get well. And, and I took all of that. And, and you know, uh, God does not change one person's condition unless they start to change themselves first. Mm-hmm. So I have to be the one to seek treatment. I have to be the one to... Um, fill out a mental health diagnosis form and, and be really open and honest about everything that I went through. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of a whole new journey for me. The ability to be honest with somebody else, like, yeah. I, it was hard. like, oh my God, like, it is because it really, it releases something. Like, I can feel this bag that I have been wearing was so heavy for so many years just to start to get really light, like, I was just like, oh my God, I can breathe a little bit better. Mm-hmm. My, 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 my chest was just so tight and, and I can really like see this. Anyway, it was just this experience. I, it was like a spiritual awakening. Now I know why they call it a spiritual awakening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so that ability to be honest, yeah. so honesty, um, just opened so many doors for me. And, and after that, I mean, yes, I was on medication and I will admit it. Like if you need to be on medication, please get on your medication because medications do help. Mm. Um, they do help you sustain and to be part of your recovery process. And there's nothing wrong with being on an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication yeah. to help you, um, balance and normalize your life back. Um, but with all of that, also having a relationship with, with, with God and, and, and my faith really shaped me. That's, that's really how I was able to really be this woman that I am today. And then I've made my repentance to God. I repented. So after I made my repentance, I, no, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I only care about what God thinks about me because he's going to be the ultimate judge um, so that's why I became the empowerment of sharing my recovery story came from that source mm-hmm. and it was God. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about, I think there are a couple of things I want to turn back, but maybe I'll come back to this a bit later. Um, but tell us about the decision and the process of creating the space within of your organization where was the the genesis point of this moment that was or what shaped the experiences of wanting to create um this recovery community organization and and actually tell us about your your platform because i don't yeah. think any of us know about it 
Right. So <laughs> NIA, um, NIA Recovery Initiative is um, is the first recovery organization in the entire nation to help our East African immigrant refugees and the Muslim population sustain their recovery at the community level. Yeah. As you all know that Minnesota is such a treatment state and we don't really invest in recovery community organizations. Mm. So people really um, initiate recovery in a treatment center where they can do like 20 days, 30 days or at our earth facility or, or something like that. But then when they come out, where do they sustain their recovery mm. in the community? So. Um, I wanted to create Nia, which means intention. So intention, meaning that you intend with your heart to be well and healthy. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have all these other um, sources of uh, you know, helping you to succeed towards your recovery. Um, so Nia was established from a place of um, good intention and, and, and stories of women and men that have lived through experience of recovery. Um, and, and I had to make a really hard decision and say, you know, our community really needs this. There's not, this has not been done. Mm-hmm. So other communities in, in the United States can, that are serving our population um, can really adapt what we're doing. So we're just learning and right now. So we're just learning and, and doing the work that nobody else is doing. Um, so that's a little bit about Nia. Um, and we use the model of peer recovery support um, to help um, other community, you know, someone else with lived experience, help them succeed them in their recovery. We're building relationships with um, 245G or, or treatment providers, um, and we're getting a lot of positive positive support from the community because this has never been done. Mm. So cool. And I think even and I think even at the level of wanting to I'm hearing you speak to it and I and I think about involving the community in the process of recovery because I know a lot, a lot of time at least at least even for me in my in my community we say it takes a village to raise a child <laughs> and so this is part of that process too and it should take a village I guess to make us to make to make us feel welcome to make us feel that we are allowed to feel vulnerable even in recovery and in the process of treatment so thank you for sharing that so I have a question yeah yeah so we're talking about it takes a village and it takes a village for recovery. It takes, it, it takes a Nia village, an intentional village for recovery. So what do you feel needs to happen in this village to start this movement, this process? Thank you. That's a great question. You're absolutely right. Like you cannot do recovery work by yourself like even if you are on the other end like you need support people need support i needed support um and what it's gonna take is for people in my community to really wake up like wake up because um this is addiction and and mental health recovery it's not going anywhere um you know it's not gonna go anywhere we need to because right now our community we're burying at least someone um, every weekend, wow. like because of the opioid epidemic that's wow. taken over the whole country. Yeah. So um, young men and women are, are dying and overdosing yeah. and and parents and, and the community have to really wake up because it, it you know, it, it's our responsibility to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I really I would love people to understand 
uh, what NIA is and what it means to the community and that this is a community-driven initiative mm -hmm. and that I want them to get on the table. I want them to help me move this, help us move this initiative forward for future generations so that they don't struggle like I did growing up in this country. Yeah. 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 Oh, and, and, as, and, and as you're speaking about the opioid epidemic, something that we have also seen, at least in the past year of, of 2020, coming into 2021, is also this increase in a lot of hate, uh, just blatant hate for people that look different, people who look different from others. Um, and I think we're coming off the week, um, of the wake, uh, in the wake of... Um, there was a, a murder this past week. I don't know if any of you saw it. And I think it was in Canada where this young man um, ran over a Muslim family that was taking a walk. And they were like, a son, a nine-year-old was the only one who's surviving and he's now in the hospital. And I hope I'm getting the facts of this right. And killed this whole family just because of, I guess, prejudice and statements that we have about ideas that we have about who a person in a hijab represents or who a person who is an Asian on the street represents. And we've seen a lot of hate crimes happening this past year. And that also really does make it, it multiplies the effect of, of, of being in a space where it feels like um, the status quo is against you. And, and I think this could also be something that puts, uh, punctures the, the process of recovery or even maybe increases what, what you're saying, the effect of like, De substance abuse and dependence. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little yeah. bit to what, even in the wake of what we've seen this year, even in the Twin Cities, could you speak a little bit to that as well? Yeah, I, I did see that story. It, yeah. it was really sad. I saw that story on social media and, and, you know, stories like that just really break my heart because it's like, where is the compassion? Yeah. You know, where is the compassion in people? Um, I don't know much about that story particularly, but I do know about the effects of COVID-19 and this pandemic and what it had and, you know, and how much it really has increased um, mental health and substance use disorders and the opioid epidemic as well. Mm. Um, there was a 27% increase in overdose deaths from the Minnesota Department of Health wow. from 2019 to 2020. That could have been preventable. Yeah. Um, and uh, with the social isolation and everything else that has to do with the pandemic, uh, you know, people, alcohol um, sales increased, you know, mental health was really on the, on the, on the rise. Um, and right now that things are coming back to semi-normal, we want to help stabilize individuals the best way that we can. Yeah. And, and I know the telehealth, um, you know, there's a lot of providers doing telehealth work. Um, and we want to be able to make sure that everybody is able to be access, you know, accessibility is so important. How do people access, um, you know, treatment, recovery, um, you know, mental health, anything to do with, um, you know, their overall health yeah. um, through a laptop, computer, through a phone, yeah. uh, whatever it is that they, they need to do. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's all I can say about that and the pandemic. I'm glad that things are moving towards um you know, no masks right now. <laughs> so you talk about access. Um, for somebody who may be listening to this podcast, who knows they need to reach out for help, and you seeing that you did it and you were successful gave them strength, what's, mm -hmm. what are the first steps? What does, 
and you know, what were your first steps? What are the first steps? And what should people expect? Um, because sometimes yeah. fear of the unknown is the other thing that keeps people for, from reaching out. So I heard you say yeah. you had to be yeah. honest. Um, yeah. And I know in my community, we go to the doctor and, you know, you rack up a good number of lies or at least untruths. Did you floss every day? Every day. <laughs> Just last night I flossed for the first time this year. And <laughs> so, so um, you know, what are the first steps, you, you know, it, um, and what should someone expect? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. Um, you know, if, if you're out there and, and you're like, you know, I'm not really sure what to do. I just want you to know that, honestly, help is available to you. Um, and, you know, whatever it is that you're going through, it's, it's something that you're going through because you need help. And, and it's definitely a test for you. Um, we want to be able to let you know that recovery is possible for you. Um, you can recover. Yeah. Um, being honest and, and it's the first step. Um, you know, honesty, picking up the phone, um, whether it's to call us at NIA Recovery Initiative, um, at, you know, you can email us or give us a call or even call 211 um, or, or NAMI. I mean, anything that you can do to really, um, Make sure that you don't feel like that. You know, you can't, you're struggling alone. Being alone is, is I, I know what it's like to be alone. You can be in a, in a room full of people yeah, and still so feel lonely. And, and that is, that is really scary. Um, so being honest with yourself, um, you know, wherever, there's also some other external factors that might initiate recovery for some folks, like probation or, you know, going to the ER, um, you know, being honest with those folks. And I want you to know that um, we want you to succeed. We don't want you to to die. I really don't want to see somebody dying, mm. you know. Um, I and, and also HIPAA. HIPAA is important. And if you don't know what HIPAA is, it really keeps you protected. It keeps us protected. And we keep your information confidential. And we won't be able to let anybody know that, we're treating you or, or that we're working with you or, or anything or whatever it is. Or that's that confidentiality aspect. Not a lot of people know about that because people are like, oh, because, oh, I don't want anybody to know my information. And that's a cultural. Yeah, my, yeah. It, is. it really is. You know, so people, um, that's one of the barriers, too, is like um, not able to fully understand the process of recovery. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and that's why a lot of people, the shame and the stigma, you know, keeps them from reaching out because they're like, oh, they're going to talk about me in the community. Yeah. Um, but HIPAA comes in and you explain people to HIPAA. It's like, OK, I get it. Like, I, you know, so give us some kind of accountability. Mm -hmm. um, so being honest, picking up the phone um, and we'll meet you wherever you're at. Like you let us know what your recovery looks like to you. I'm not going to dictate you to to move fast or slow you where well, i'm just going to we're just going to walk alongside your recovery journey mm -hmm. and that's all it, it takes is you define your recovery and now there's harm reduction and a lot of different models of recovery just to keep you safe and we'll explain all of that and you make the decision yeah 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 oh i think honesty is hot i think even 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 <laughs> if you're not even if you're not in um unwell even if you're not having a crisis, 
sometimes mm-hmm. honestly it can just be hard to say Cynthia I'm actually not okay today yeah and 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 I think that the importance of you sharing that that's that's kind of a big first step to be honest even with yourself and be like actually Piri we are not okay <laughs> let's find some help. let's find some help yeah hmm. you know and it I think it, it helps when you know the person on the other end of the phone has walked your journey you know, NAMI is an organization where everyone who works here either lives with a mental illness or has a family member who's lived with a mental illness. And so we've all been to the mats, so to speak. We've all been through it. And and when I reached out to NAMI, it meant so much to me, a black woman, um, that I was less likely to be judged because the people who answered the phone had seen that and worse, you know? (laughs) Um, And so there was nothing that I could say that would shock them. Um, There was nothing that I could say that would cause judgment. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it means so much that that you, Fahiraz, have been through this and that you're willing to share your story and you're willing to be vulnerable. Um, And that you're, you're also giving a message of hope, you know, that you overcame those obstacles um, and you're pulling everyone else that needs it along with you. So I think I think that's amazing. Um, Thank you. Other things that you want to share that you think would be beneficial for someone, um, you know, whose mental health may be affected by all that's gone on. Um, I, I mean, I think there are very few people whose mental health hasn't been affected. But are there some other yeah. things that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, in my community, um, because of the stigma and the shame, it's like really complex levels of stigma and shame that from the real, you know, normal society or the other Western society way, because everybody has stigma in every community. Mm -hmm. But I feel like our stigma is just one that is just really hard. And it's like, it almost eats at your soul. Mm -hmm. And, And I want others to know that, like, you can put down all of that and, and even to help educate the parents because once the young adult is wanting to get help, then they have, you know, the mom saying, oh, we, we can't have this or oh, nothing is wrong with you. Let's go to the imam um, mm-hmm. because people care so much about what the neighborhood thinks, what the neighbors think, what the tribe thinks and all of these other and I want people to know that we've got to really talk about, you know, put all of that aside and focus wholeheartedly on the individual and the needs of that individual because it's our responsibility as a community mm. to do this. And we're almost as like, um, Cynthia, you talked about vulnerability. Vulnerability, I love being vulnerable. I always used to think that being vulnerable was like a weakness or it's not that. It's yeah. Being vulnerable helps you to connect with others mm. without having to have any expectations. When I, the work that I'm doing, I, I don't have any expectations from anyone. Mm. As long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and if I can help one person yeah. sustain their mm-hmm. recovery, like I know I've done what I needed to do. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it really is about vulnerability, connecting with people in a language that really that they understand and in a commonality that they understand that they can articulate. Hmm. They're able to really connect with you. Um, and you, you know, you can, I, I, I put on all the big titles and the credentials and all of that and just be a monk side person, you yeah. know, um, 
that that's really what works for us in our community. Um, so yeah, I, I think being vulnerable, acceptance, um, being honest. Um, and if you're a hijabi, you don't have to wear a hijab. You know, you can still do this and still recover. And like, we want to be able to help you to succeed. You know, a lot of people think that because we're wearing hijabs that we're perceived a certain way. And that's another stigma amongst our own community within each other. So um, it, it's about just being who you are and being comfortable at, at in your level. Because at the end of the day, we just want to see you succeed in your recovery. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think I, I really like that you said that and because it, it speaks there are so many little nuggets that you were saying and I was like oh, 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 I should say that more because I think um, one of the ways that um, community mm-hmm. responds to uh, mental health challenges or any 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 kind of anything that they don't understand they'll like like they'll push faith at you you know <laughs> go, go to the go to the like what you said go to the imam the imam will fix yeah. it you know i mean but the imam is not therapy and i think some of the, both of those things can exist together at the same time so one of the some of the things that community mm-hmm. encourages are like great things but like holistic healing needs to come from other spheres of seeking treatment as well so. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's why it's important to um, include. I mean, faith is is so important in, in 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 recovery. So we cannot exclude the imams in our community and the faith leaders. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we want to have that in conjunction of what you know, seeking our therapy and and taking our medication, right. um, going you know one on one or anything like that. But it's like. You can't have one without the other, you know, and it's, it's like faith is, is spirituality is so important and mm-hmm. recovery. Yeah. It, it really is. So I, I am glad that you that you understand that. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Would you describe yourself as a healer and an advocate? Because some of some people would describe some of your work as healing, too, that you're you're going to help other people in the process of recovery, but you're also advocating for them in, in different kind of spheres, even with your involvement in, in, in legislative work. Could you speak a little bit to your hats as a healer and your hat as an advocate? Yeah, sure. Um, I <clears throat> Well, I wanna I wanna put it out there that I haven't done a whole lot uh, like as a capital capital work and like legislative. I've just been advocating among our representatives in our community okay. on the importance of mental health work. So I wanna clear that a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but hopefully I will move towards that and and um, and I you know walk for recovery and um, and also advocating at the capital for recovery. I'll continue to do that with. Uh, organizations and but um you know I, I i don't consider myself as a healer hmm. although my community members do because it's hmm. this work that we're doing because it's like when you think of a a healer um it's different levels to it right but honestly i'm just doing the work that i mean recovery has become my purpose yes um recovery has become so part of my whole life my whole purpose because I have been through, oh my God, I've been through a lot with with my own recovery journey and, and the ups and downs. And now that I've found recovery 
and recovery is able to give me back my values and traditions, I can help instill that in other people. Yeah. Um, so I always say, you know, Alhamdulillah, which means praise God, and um, and that um, you know that others might call me up and we can talk about recovery and and how you know help them to uh, you know help their son or daughter recover. And and I always tell them it, it's it's among the individual. You know, it's among the individual. Like nobody else can do this for you, but you. You know, so it's it's that other part too, where uh, it becomes um, you know that understanding. Like, how do I recover? Um, it, and it's in recovery is a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been long term recovery. Like, it, it, it's not become where it says, oh, now I've recovered. I'm I'm a normie or whatever people say those terms, but. Recovery is a lifelong journey. Like you're going to be in recovery. I'm going to be in recovery forever. And I'm okay with that because now I know how to navigate recovery and have fun in recovery and and do amazing things in recovery and be a mom to my kids and and the best mom that I can be and be all these roles that I have among my family dynamic and, and still be okay with that without, you know, chemicals in my body, you know, these, these other intoxicants and these things that influence my decision making in the past. So mm-hmm. I can, so it's just being, um, you know, cleansing my heart, you know, so my having a great intention, that NIA aspect, mm-hmm. um, and really purifying my, myself, um, you know, so, so yeah, I, I hope that makes sense. So oh, it does. Yeah. So I have a question. How has your family and community reacted to your reaching out for recovery and attaining recovery? What's, how, what was that process? The second part of that question is, mm-hmm. what did they do that really helped you? Did they do something that really helped you? And if they did, what was it? Yes. Um, yeah, so in the beginning, um, because of all the years that I've just stayed suffering because, um, you know, the stigma and everything, I had to get honest. So once I started to get honest, that opened the door for so many more. So like telling my family, I'm going public, letting, you know, I'm, I'm going, because at first they were like, we got to get you healed. What can we do to help you? Um, can you stop doing this? Can you stop doing that? And I didn't know because addiction has become so huge. I mean, it became, it, 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 over, it absorbed me. And I didn't know how to, I was like, I dug myself a big hole and I didn't know how to climb out of it. Mm. And, and so I, um, so that was, that was the first part was just that acceptance piece and, and being honest with myself and, and saying, uh, you know, I, I, I need some help. How can I reach, how can I get some help? Although I knew because I've worked in programs in the past and I knew what it was like being a professional. And now the role was switched to me being a client. Right. Mm. Um, and, and, and that heartburg, like, oh, my God, like, now I'm a client. Like, mm-hmm. so I had to move away from that. So telling my family and my community, there's been a lot of positive feedback. People are like, you know, we're so happy, you know, like, you're, you're a hijabi. You can do this. Like, you are an ambassador for us. What can we do to support you? Mm-hmm. So it's been amazing. Wow. It's been really an amazing journey. And then my family what my family did to help me was they accepted me. And they mm-hmm. also said, we love you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Do what you need to do for yourself and your recovery. And and I want to let people know doing this work is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. So we must also have some self-care 
and self-care is so important. Like uh, we want to be able to take a step back and, and, and look in and say, you know what, I, I've, I've got to make sure I go to my own therapy appointment. I have one coming up next Friday. Um, make sure that I'm on top of, you know, being um, what I need to do for myself, right? Taking away, like leaving work at work, shutting the computer off and all of that, like, you know, the everything so that you are able to like go for a walk, hang out with your kids, do some fun activity stuff. Those are also important part of my recovery journey because self-care is also important too. So families um, in my community, the Hoyos, Hoyo Ma'an, Il Mahago, Il Mahago, like that one language, you know, so I just kind of started speaking Somali, but like Hoyos are so important, you know? Hoyas are so important. Like, Hoyas are mothers, like the mothers in our community. Um, and connecting with the moms in my community just meant so much to me because um, they, they, they deal with so much, you know? Mm-hmm. They, they deal with so much. Sometimes they don't know whether their son or daughter who's going to walk out the door is going to come back. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because my mom has been there. Yeah. You know, she knows what it's like for me to leave out the door and and don't know if I'm going to come back or what happens to me or if I'm dead, you know, somewhere in a ditch. Like, she, she didn't know. Yeah. So it's the constant worry. So I want to be able to really create a safe space for moms, too. And the family, so this is a family disease. And that family can also heal together. Yeah. I love that. Oh, yeah, that is so beautiful. Oh, wow. Thanks. And I think we can yeah. kind of kind of think as we are wrapping up today. Um, I wrote down something that I picked up from what you said um, that I thought I like to reflect on resistance in color, mm-hmm. I guess, as I'm listening to the guests on the podcast speak on little facets and, and, and definitions of what resistance could look like. And in, your con- in our conversation today, I picked up you said um, self-care therapy, recovery spot of resistance and advocacy, all of these are different ways that you are um, as an individual for your community, for yourself, for your family, uh, being active and actively resisting in color. And I think it's such a gift that you have been able to come on here and share that with us and with our listeners who might be in recovery or thinking about recovery or thinking about how they can use their voice to help others um, or being part of a community or being part of a family um, to see how and different ways that they too can like become resilient and how they can be part of resistance in color. So thank you for sharing your voice. You're welcome. Thank you so much for your insights um, and thank you for presenting um, Nia and and for the birth of Nia. Um, and so as we look at closing out today, um, we've talked about a lot of things. Um, is there one thing that you would say to somebody, you look them in the eye and right now they're struggling? Is there one thing that you could say um, to help them on their journey? I see you. I really do. I know that you're hurting. You don't have to hurt again. You don't have to hurt by yourself. You don't have to struggle. Come here. I want to give you a hug. Everything will be okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
I hope as you're listening um, that you receive that hug from Fahia, from Fahia and from all of us here on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fahia. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. And thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. All music loops used in this episode came from the song titled The Way, produced by Mike Lighty and made available through a Creative Commons license. Mike Lighty's music can be heard online at soundcloud.com forward slash Mike Lighty. Lighty is spelled L-E-I-T-E. For information about the Creative Commons license and additional links to Mike's music, including the full version of the song, The Way, please see the podcast show notes for this episode.